Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the ACES cast. My name is Gunasib Gatulina and in this podcast I talk to researchers affiliated with the Amsterdam Center for European Studies about their ongoing projects, academic journey and favorite books. My guest today is Natalie Welfens. Hello Natalie. Hi. Natalie Welfens is a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Political Science of the University of Amsterdam. Before joining the UFA in 2016, Natalie obtained a double master degree in international relations and political science from Sciences Po Paris and Freie Universiteit Berlin. Her research interests focus on questions around inequality, inclusion and exclusion, and categorization practices in refugee and asylum policies. Natalie, just a week ago, you have successfully defended your PhD thesis. My sincere congratulations. As you know, there are no two paths alike to the doctor's degree. So what did this journey entail for you? First of all, thanks for the warm wishes and also thanks for having me. And I think it's very true that the pathway to a PhD and throughout are always very individually. Mine, in a sense, started almost a decade ago when I did my Erasmus studies at the University of Amsterdam and took a class that was called Introduction to Gender and Sexuality, taught by Lisa Mugge, who five years later would become the supervisor of my PhD dissertation. And in this class, we learned quite a lot about gender and intersectionality, how different social categories create inequalities, inclusions, and exclusions. And I also had an interest already back then in migration studies and wanted to combine the two. So taking the gender and intersectionality glasses to the field of migration and refugee policies to understand how inclusions and exclusions are produced. Searching for someone who was willing to supervise my PhD project, which would combine gender and intersectionality theories with migration studies, I contacted my teacher from back then, Lisa, who said that this sounds like a promising project, let's work on this together and let's apply for the NVO Young Talent Grant. So a talent grant by the Dutch Research Council, which would support an individual PhD project. And without really knowing what I was getting into, I said, yes, let's let's try, which was the beginning of a very long process, um, several application rounds. And eventually I was among the lucky ones who got this grant, uh, which enabled me to start my PhD project in 2016 back at the UFA with Lisa Möge as my supervisor and Marike de Goede as the co-supervisor. Sounds like an exciting journey, and I hope that that's just the beginning of your academic career. But uh, let's talk a little bit more about your PhD research. Your thesis focused on intricacies of European resettlement and humanitarian admission programs. Could you please elaborate on what these programs actually are? Of course, these programs are actually not that much known, although they are one of the very few ways for refugees to safely and legally get protection in Europe. So the images that most of us probably know are pictures of refugees arriving in Europe irregularly by boat because there is no way for them to enter the EU legally and safely to then claim asylum upon arrival. These resettlement or humanitarian admission programs, I just call them refugee admission programs because there is today a whole variety of these programs um, that admit refugees to countries that are usually located in, in the global north. In these programs, European states, such as Germany, which is the country that I focused on, admit a limited number of refugees from first countries of refuge, such as 
Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, if we think of Syrian refugees, and grant them legal access and temporary or long-term protection. These programs are special because they grant safe and legal access, but also because it is the admission state that actively selects refugees and grants these people protection. So in contrast to those who have to travel irregularly by boat and in, in highly dangerous circumstances, people who are admitted via these programs can actually board an airplane and arrive safely in, in Europe where they have the certainty to get a protection status. Uh, in the previous episodes, we talked already about some of the mechanisms that the European Union employs to manage migration, covering also problematic aspects of, for instance, humanitarian aid. Despite being unquestionably an instrument of assistance to those in need, a resettlement program that you're talking about obviously has also some serious shortcomings. The first thing that comes to my mind is a practice of cherry picking. For example, EU member states that participate in this program can choose and pick the refugees they want to have. The latter are usually the ones highly educated and skilled. What kind of concerns related to the resettlement program did you raise in your thesis? Yeah, I think this is a very important question of also the pitfalls that these programs have. And let me start by emphasizing that these programs are a voluntary and fully discretionary additional commitment by European states. And therefore, states can indeed decide whether or not to engage in these programs in the first place, can define a quota, can decide where they admit refugees from, and can define selection criteria, which is different from the individual right to asylum, which is codified in international and national law. And therefore, there is, of course, the risk to cherry pick or to have criteria that are not only humanitarian, but also focus more on security aspects or questions of integration. And indeed, when one compares how these programs developed over time, if one compares, for example, Germany's programs before the so-called refugee crisis of 2015 and afterwards the programs under the EU-Turkey statement, we do see a shift from more humanitarian-oriented criteria and justifications of European states towards a stronger emphasis on state security and integration criteria. We also see this particular tendency to not only use these programs as a humanitarian tool, but also employ them to manage migration, to better filter who is coming and who is not. We also see this in the EU's proposals for a common uh, European framework for resettlement and humanitarian admissions. So the tendency is quite clearly there. However, we also, if we, if we actually zoom into how these programs work, which is what I did in my doctoral dissertation, it also becomes clear that the final decision of EU member states is only a very small part of the selection process, because there are so many steps before that that also involve other actors who already pre-select refugees. If we look at the programs from Turkey, for example, there actually the Turkish state migration authorities are involved in the pre-selection and also have, of course, their own interest in who they want to keep in the country and who they agree to go 
and to move uh, onwards. We also have the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR, that is involved in the process and also tries to safeguard the humanitarian roots of these programs. However, because it is an, uh, a voluntary and discretionary extra commitment of admission states, they do have the power to say who is included and excluded at the final front line, so to speak. And because they are quite powerful in the process, also all the other actors that are involved in the process before them try to anticipate what will happen at this decisive frontline of admission states final selection. And there, the, this discretionary aspect also plays a central role because the practices are not in, entirely transparent. So for some of the selection criteria that states like Germany formulate, uh, such as integration potential, it is not entirely clear how it is assessed in the at the final front line. Another aspect that this discretionary dimension of these policies have is, of course, that once someone is rejected from the programs and is kicked out of the selection process, refugees themselves have no possibility whatsoever to challenge a negative decision or to actually get more information why they were not selected. Let's go a little bit into detail about the selection criteria, um, because in your work you discuss that resettlement programs often target, and here I quote, particularly vulnerable or, quote, the most vulnerable refugees. The latter categories usually include women and children. What are the benefits and drawbacks of such positive discrimination practices, in your opinion? Yeah, this is also a very important question that I think many of the resettlement actors that I interviewed actually struggle with themselves. And I found that interesting and also worthwhile mentioning because I started this research thinking of, of some of these, especially state bureaucrats, as you know, just executing what the policy, what the policy says. Whereas what I actually found were many people who were critically reflecting about some of the inequalities that such policy categories create. I'm thinking of one German state representative in particular who said, we do not have a choice but to categorize because the need is so big, but in the end, less than 1% of all refugees worldwide can be resettled. So we do have to have some criteria. And indeed, this criterion of focusing on women and children or also on families is often seen to be the most natural way to categorize or to include and exclude. This particular state official also said, well, with every single criterion, we create new inequalities, which I found, yeah, a striking degree of, of self-reflexiveness. And if we now think about this, you know, you cannot see the, the quote-unquote quotation marks um, on the recording, but this natural or, or supposedly natural focus on, on women and children on the one hand, which goes hand in hand with the tendency to exclude refugee men in particular when they come without family, when they are young, when they are uh, able-bodied and when they don't have any health issues and when they are heterosexual. So these are the, the tendencies in the selection that we see. And of course, what this is grounded in, but what this also reproduces is a certain assumption of who is a genuine refugee, who is vulnerable, who needs protection, which is also embedded in a kind of, you know, very paternalistic logic of who Europe needs to provide help to and who is 
supposedly resilient enough on the one hand, but also maybe potentially too dangerous to let to be let into, into Europe. So we see these kind of very gendered ideas of who is deserving and undeserving. So this tendency to focus on women, children and families on the one hand and to thereby not focus on single heterosexual young men is very much in line with some of the discourses that we saw in what came to be known as Europe's refugee crisis, which is very much linked to the idea of who is resilient, who is vulnerable, who is deserving, who is undeserving, and who is the real refugee and who is a bogus refugee. And what is interesting about these more social categorizations of deservingness is that they have very little to do with the actual legal basis of who should get recognized as a refugee, which is about individual persecution or the fear of being persecuted. So whereas the legal context would require us to actually do a case-by-case -case assessment, I think there is a broader tendency, not only in resettlement, but in European refugee policies more broadly, to think in social categories of who is in need and who isn't, but also who is beneficial to Europe or who can supposedly integrate best. It is interesting because when I'm listening to you, I do hear this very traditional and what do you say, paternalistic look at the family, at the women and their role and indeed them being mothers of children, first of all. And that makes me think that how does this still very traditional categories match the current development in Western Europe that at the moment experiences normalization of different family types, not all of which are even based on marriage? Yeah, that is such a good observation. And I think it really underscores the othering that is happening in these policies and programs where the idea of how a family works or what the gender roles are outside of Europe is seen to be fundamentally different from European norms. And this is something that we see not only in the selection criteria, but also the way how they are then operationalized at the front line, which is, for example, through questions of whether the father would let the children participate in mixed swimming classes or the hypothetical reaction refugees would have to a same-sex couple kissing on the street. So in these examples, we really see that there is the perception of the West and the rest having completely different family norms, ideas of gender equality, and so on, where certainly uh, in this particular case, the Arab or Muslim culture, it's not very clear what the reference category is here, is seen to be archaic and, and very backwards-minded. And since your research particularly focused on Germany, I have another question indeed specifically for this country, because um, Germany was among the EU countries that accepted thousands of Syrians fleeing a brutal civil war in 2015 and 16, um, which made Syrians become the third largest group of foreigners living in Germany after Turks and Poles. Other state-sponsored efforts to integrate the Syrian refugees in Germany besides those courses that you were talking about? And do these efforts draw on the past experience with Turkish immigration? Yeah, it's something that also was a lot on my mind when in 2015, 2016, 
the topic of refugees, refugee integration, the cultural tensions that that this might bring about were really at the very forefront of all the public and, and political debates. And the question of whether Germany is or is not a country of immigration seemed to pop up again and 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 be on the table again. It is something that that was that was not really part of the debate, these parallels between previous immigration movements and, and refugee movements, I think partly because the very reason why people came were were maybe very different. One was more labor migration and the other one was linked to a civil war. However, I think some of the questions of, you know, for example, whether the whether Islam belongs to Germany or not, are some of the common denominators between these different phenomena. And in all of that, I think what is happening is a kind of self-reflection about who belongs to Germany and who doesn't, but also who belongs to Europe and, and who, who does not. And I think what is actually interesting is that we could have maybe learned much more from previous experiences of how integration can work and not only as something that is one directional, not only something that the newcomers have to do and certain expectations that they have to fulfill, but something that has also a lot to do with how German society or the majority in, in, in the society opens up or also goes one step towards these groups. And they, I think, there is still some work to be done. Thank you, Natalie, for sharing your observations and insights from your work. And I have to ask you our final recurring question, of course, about books. What would you suggest our listeners should read after listening to this episode? Yeah, I always really enjoy the book recommendations that came out of the podcast so far. I already wrote some of them down. And also really enjoy thinking about what, what my book recommendations would be. So I have three in total, the first one being a book which was at the beginning of my PhD journey and my intellectual journey of thinking about categories, and that is the book by Dvorayanov called Constructing Race and Ethnicity in America, which really helped me to, to understand the work that categories do and the politics that is embedded in them, both in the way they are formulated, but also in the way they are practiced and implemented at the front line. And then a book that I recently read for my current postdoctoral research, which looks at monitoring and evaluation practices of the EU Trust Fund for Africa, is a book by Sally Engel-Mary called The Seduction of Quantification, Measuring Human Rights, Gender Violence and Sex Trafficking. And in a sense, it also looks at categories, but in the particular context of measuring assessment and rankings. And it looks at the politics again that are embedded in these measurements in numbers so in the very tools that we often think are very objective and neutral but through an ethnography of indicators she shows how there is a lot of politics deliberation and contestation involved in these numbers and classifications and the third book that I would like to briefly mention, which I'm currently reading, I'm, I'm not fully done with it yet, is a book by Maurice Steele called Migrant Resistance in Contemporary Europe. And I wanted to mention it because I think he's doing a great job in foregrounding refugees' own experiences and very local 
protests and, and resistance and how this is related and implicated with global and transnational forms of refugee and border governance. And something that I think international relations could do a little bit more, namely forefronting refugees' experiences in the global governance of migration. Thank you very much, Natalie, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Join me for the next episode of the ACES cast as I talk to Dimitris Boris about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, its impact on academic freedom, and whether a researcher should be an activist. Stay tuned. <laughs>